Uh, we kind of came to a close of a section of that last week in terms of God the Creator and honoring Him as He wishes to be honored. But since we have this fast coming up, I thought I would change the subject a bit for a week and then maybe get back to that same series on honoring God from perhaps a different perspective than what we have looked at so far. But here in Zechariah 8, uh, we have what is so very, very clearly an end-time uh, book, end-time prophecies, culminates uh, in chapter 14 with the return of Christ to this earth. So the context here clearly is of the building of the temple of God and those events that the church is involved in here at the end time in the book of Zechariah. So it is very much a now book is the point I want to make without going into a great deal more background on that. I think we're pretty familiar with that by now. But he says here in chapter 8, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. He said, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. So Jerusalem is going to come back into prominence from a standpoint of righteousness. Now as we get into this today, we're going to see, I think, and I'll mention this part here, the city of Jerusalem today is not a city of righteousness. It is the home of the Jews who are utterly unrighteous, and there are not many Jews there in the first place, they're Edomites to begin with. But they call it the Jewish home, but Christ wrote the Jews off and said, I'll never have anything more to do with you until you accept those whom I've sent. And that was the early New Testament apostles and the Christian church. So God does not have anything to do with the Jews today, and any temple that the Jews might build somewhere will not be the temple of God because he has written them off for the time being. The other faction in Jerusalem, or the second faction, is the so-called Christians, and we know that they are not Christians. They do not keep the Ten Commandments. They say they're done away. They do not keep the Sabbath, which is a sign between God and his people. Many, many people in so-called Christian Christendom or Christianity today recognize that the Sabbath is on Saturday. It's the seventh day of the week, always has been, always will be. And I've talked to many ministers myself in my life, so-called Christian ministers, who say, I know Saturday is the Sabbath, but if I preach that, nobody comes to my meetings. So I'll keep Sunday, which was instituted not by God, but by men and Satan, perhaps in the Garden of Eden for that matter. And it's come forward ever since. Therefore, they do not recognize the God of creation because he set the Sabbath as a memorial between the creation and himself and his people. So if they will not keep the Sabbath, they are not Christian. So Christianity is a mess today, and that's only the beginning of it. The other faction in the Jerusalem over there today is the Muslims. They are not by any means Christians and do not recognize the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in any form, shape, or fashion. So today, Jerusalem 
that Jerusalem over there has no part with God. It is pagan to the core. It is religious confusion to the core. And there is nothing in Scripture that indicates that's going to get any better between now and the time that Christ returns. Those peoples who are there will continue to control it, and I do believe that that will be the false Jerusalem where the false beast, the worship Satan, will set up their headquarters, at least initially, uh, until they take over the true Jerusalem, which we are learning about. And then they will set up their abomination of desolation in the true place of holiness and have control of it for 42 months. But before that, it has to be called a city of truth and the mountain of the eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. And you cannot by any stretch of the imagination say that Jerusalem there today is a city of truth. It just does not exist there. <clears throat> anyway, it goes on down. He talks in verse 9 about, Let your hands be strong, you that hear in these days. What days? The days leading up to the return of Christ. These words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundations of the house of the eternal of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. So, there has been a temple built in the past. The prophets of old mentioned those, but they also mention a temple to be built in the end time. For before there's these days there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beasts, beast, neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in, because of the affliction. For I said, all men, every one, against his neighbor. That describes both the church of God as we see it today, and it describes our nation increasingly day by day as time goes on. So these prophecies are centered in the leadership nation of Jerusalem today. This is the nation where God began his church. It is the nation that God is about to destroy because of the abominations against God. We have the states now being set against the federal government. And this is a widening rift that will continue until there is violence in the streets. Anyway, he's talking about the remnant of his people in verse 12. These have to be true Christians, the church of God, because that is whom God is dealing with. He's not dealing with the rest of mankind yet. And he will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. So God's church is going to possess Jerusalem again. The question is, which Jerusalem? Let's go on. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. The same thing he says all throughout the book of Haggai to his people. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Eternal of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, Fear you not. So God is going to do something for the house of Jude. I'm turning that fan up. Whew. Warm today. Anyway, he says in verse 16, These are the things that you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. So he's speaking to the church here, and those are the things we're to do when we're in a land that does not really know peace. We're a land of war. We're fighting battles all over the world, and we're starting battles around the world, and we're going to start some more. 
primarily Iran, I think, is the other horn of Persia, of Daniel 8. Anyway, he says, The word of the Eternal of Hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace. So he says, These fasts that were instituted because of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, uh, and so on, without going into the history again to any great degree, are fast because of desolation and because of sin. And if we will follow peace and the truth of God, they're going to turn into feasts of joy. Now, there are some who say, well, we don't have to keep those. I ask you then, why are they in this context? Why are they in the book of Zechariah leading up to the return of Christ, if they were just some ancient things for the Jews only? Now, the Jews are not going to follow truth and peace, are they? No. Therefore, it can only refer to spiritual Judah, the church, who are the ones who will follow the truth, which does produce peace. So this is written to us. And if a, if a fast is going to be turned to me, as a church member, into a feast of joy, that means that I must have been fasting up until it turns to a feast of joy. Now, even with the Jews, Jerusalem has not turned into a happy city or a city of peace, has it? I mean, it's in the news every day, the war and the conflicts that go on around that Jerusalem over there, is it not? between the Palestinians and the so-called Jews, who say they're Jews but are not. Anyway, I think that's enough background there. But I want us to understand, if we're going to go into a fast on Tuesday, I do not take fasting lightly. It is not something I, as a human being, enjoy. I don't know that I've ever enjoyed a fast. I prefer, much prefer, to eat and drink. Uh, it's just more comfortable and more enjoyable. Uh, going without food and water is not a bit fun. Therefore, I think that we need to consider some things and understand how this applies to us, not how it might apply to some Jews if you completely throw away the context and try to make it fit that. Yes, Judah did institute these, <coughs> but let's understand that God brought them forward by his prophet Zechariah in an end-time context. And to me, that's all I need. Because Jerusalem is still desolate. And it is not a city of peace and truth. At least that Jerusalem is there. Uh, the Jerusalem I think I know where it is today is a city of peace. There's no one there. And certainly there's, it's not a city of falsehood because there's no one there to teach falsehood. So in a sense, the truth about it is hidden. Anyway, this fast of the fourth month is talked about in Jeremiah 52, 6 and 7, and here in Zechariah 8, about Jerusalem being desolated. Now we have gone through the experience of seeing the spiritual church desolated in this end time, have we not? And we are now overseeing 
this land of promise that we live in on its way toward utter desolation. We're going to be taken captive. These things are about to happen to this physical land of Israel, this land of Ephraim we dwell in. It's going to be taken away from us. We will die of famine, pestilence, and the sword, and go into captivity for those who remain, except for those who will follow God and his truth. They are the only ones who are candidates to be saved out of what is about to come. So be thankful that you are a part of the truth of God today. So this fast that is coming up Tuesday is about Jerusalem being taken away from God's people. It's about the church being taken away from us so that it is scattered and splintered and spewed out of God's mouth. Now that makes it very, very much for today, a today prophecy. And we know the church is equated with Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, and that Zion and Jerusalem are speaking of the church in a spiritual sense there. So this is very applicable for you and for me. It's not just some ancient history and keeping some old fast of the Jews, as some might think. Now, I want to talk about Jerusalem today quite a bit, so that we might put a little bit of the story together better, and see how Jerusalem has been cloaked in mystery and in ignorance from its very inception. Now, I read this morning a bit, just to bone up on some things, about the beginnings of Jerusalem. Now, we know in the Bible that it's spoken of as the land of Jebus, the Jebusites. And I was reading in the Bible dictionary, it was either Ungers or Smiths, I forget which, this morning I read both. But it says that Jerusalem was of Semitic origin. Now, that's an interesting statement for the biblical scholars to mention. Because Semitic means of the children of Shem, does it not? Semitic, speaking of physically uh, those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well, of Shem, actually, to go back that far. Now, they also say that it was the land of Canaan, as does the Bible, and it talks about the Amorites and the Hittites. And they say in these Bible dictionaries and commentaries, that Jerusalem was founded by Semitic people, and they were Amorites, Hittites, and Jebusites. Now, did not we go through the table of nations in Genesis 6 through 10 fairly recently? And it is very, very clear there that Canaan was of Ham, was of the black race, and it even mentions the Amorites and the Hittites there as being black, and the Jebusites as well. Now, how did these scholars get this all messed up? Because they say Jerusalem was founded by the Semitic peoples, and then they name black people. How did this happen? I'll tell you how it happened. They have found no evidence anywhere in the land of Israel, so-called today, in the Middle East, 
no indication whatsoever of black people having been there. And therefore they assume that since no black people have been there in the past, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites must have been Semitic because that's all they find there. Isn't that interesting? So they contradict the Bible, which clearly says that the peoples who formed it were black. Now, if they can't find any evidence that black people founded it, the land of Canaan was of black people, that's what the name means. Then maybe they're looking at the wrong spot. Can we consider that? God's word is inviolate. If you're going to question this book, and you don't recognize it as an authority, then there is no basis for religion. I find that with the Mormons. They look upon the Book of Mormon as the ultimate authority. And therefore, if you quote something from the Bible, they can reject it very easily because the Book of Mormon to them has more authority than this book does. So there's no sense in even talking to someone who does not recognize God's Word as what it is. But if you recognize it for what it is, and it says Jerusalem was founded by black people, then you better believe it. And if your archaeology shows a different story, then maybe you're looking in the wrong spot. Okay? Now, he made some more comments in these dictionaries of how Jerusalem is located 14 miles west of the Dead Sea, 33 miles east of the Mediterranean. Uh, it says that it's not really a good place for a capital city. It has no harbors, it has no rivers, it has very poor soil, and it has very little water. Does that sound like the promised land that God said he would give his people? It's on top of a bunch of rocks. Where are you going to get fresh fish that they talk about? Didn't have refrigerated trucks. How are you going to get them to Jerusalem and people not say, wait a minute, that's not fresh fish. The original Jerusalem had to have fresh water, lakes or rivers close enough to bring fi fresh fish to the city. Zechariah 14, verse 8. This is still, this is speaking of Jerusalem. Verse 8, And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be talking about God being king over all the earth. So rivers at that time will come out of Jerusalem, and they'll go toward the seas in both directions. But that Jerusalem has really no seas. The Mediterranean is the closest thing around. But this will be in the future. Now, a lot of research has been done, and I believe in my research, that the Garden of Eden had to have been centered at the site that would eventually become Jerusalem. Uh, Jim, uh, oh, what's his name, and John Reitenbaugh both did uh, uh, Rector. 
Jim Rector and John Reitenbaugh, both did some good uh, research on this, which I referred to in the series about the two trees. And I think that they showed pretty conclusively that Jerusalem, or that Eden, was in the site of Jerusalem. And yet, if you look at that Jerusalem there, there are no riverbeds that suggest that there ever were rivers around there. What happened? There are no rivers there. You look at the Gentile kingdoms, and they built their capitals on rivers so they could get boats in and out. They built them along the seacoast so they could have shipping. Jerusalem and the land of Palestine today, or Israel, has none of that. And they go so far as to state in these historical records that it was not even on the trade routes of ancient times. Why would you build a capital city where there are no trade routes, there are no waterways, there are no harbors? You can't get there from here. The trade routes went around that Jerusalem. It's rocks and hills. You're not going to take your cargo over that. You'll go around it. That's the way it was. It's rocky and hilly. Now, the history of that city is that it was there, but they have not proved that it was there. And then that city over there was taken over by the Muslims about 600 A.D. and was in Muslim control until 1917. Then the Edomites, so-called Jews, moved back in in 1948. Hence we have this battle between the Muslims and the so-called Israelites, who both claim that area and are fighting over it today. That's the history of it. Now, I found this very interesting. They said that the Temple of Solomon, built at Jerusalem, as the Bible record shows, was of Greek and pre-Greek, perhaps Persian architecture. They're finding all that stuff there. Now, let me ask you, when you read the account that God gave of how to build a temple, instructions to David and to Solomon, do you think that God would have instructed them to use pagan architecture for his temple? I don't think so. Those Greek, pre-Greek, Persian, Gentile builders were using Zeus and all the pagan gods, uh, Horus, on and on it goes, Semiramis, Nimrod, all the pagan gods were at the basis of their architecture. Do you think God would have used that? I don't. All right, why are they saying that? They're saying it because that's all they can find there. They cannot find any evidence of Solomon's temple whatsoever in the city of Jerusalem as it sits in the Middle East today. It simply isn't there. So what they do find tells them about Greeks and Persians and other Gentiles. That kind of goes along with the idea that, well, these peoples must have been white who were there when the Bible clearly says they were black. In other words, 
They just simply will not believe God's word. The archaeologists don't, architects don't, historians don't. They simply will not believe even the geography of Jerusalem. And we could go into that more and more. Now, you had the original Temple of Solomon, which they find no evidence of. And then it talks about the temple restored by Zerubbabel, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, as we know it, under the guidance of Cyrus. And then Herod rebuilt it. Was it over there? Did those things happen there or somewhere else? What about Ezekiel's temple, Ezekiel 40 through 48? The commentaries, the Bible dictionaries, all see very clearly that Ezekiel's temple has never been built any, anywhere on this earth as far as they have evidence. It just never happened. It isn't the same as Solomon's temple. The dimensions, everything about it, I mean there's some similarities, but essentially everything about it is different. And he even says that Zerubbabel and them were to go to the woods in Haggai and get wood to build a temple. So Ezekiel's temple will apparently be of wood, and that is not what was used before, primarily. Ezekiel's temple will simply not even fit in the Middle East when you start talking about the dimensions that are required for the court, for the city, for the land of the different tribes and so on. Uh, it won't go there. Now, Ezekiel makes it very clear, or God does through Ezekiel, that Ezekiel's temple has to be built. Now, the heavenly temple of Revelation 21 comes down from heaven, and the dimensions are entirely different there. It's 1,500 miles cubed, perhaps pyramidical, we'll see. 1,500 miles across. Ezekiel's temple is not anywhere near that size. Now, Ezekiel is an end-time prophecy, speaking about the end time, before Christ returns in the time when God says in Ezekiel roughly 50 times, they will know that I am the Eternal, as a result partly of Ezekiel's temple. So, we run out of options, don't we? If Ezekiel's temple has never been built... It is talked about in an end-time context only, and then the New Jerusalem is going to be the temple of God, the Father, and Christ, and of the bride, the 144,000. Then when is Ezekiel's temple going to be built? There's only one space of time that it is possible by a process of elimination. It hasn't been done up until today, and it will have to be done before the heavenly Jerusalem comes down at the beginning of the millennium. That only leaves between now and the time that Christ returns to the earth for Ezekiel's temple to be built. There is no other time that it could happen. Does that mean that it has to be done by God's people before Christ returns. If the temple of God is going to be defiled, 
by the abomination of desolation being set up in it, and we flee from it, then it has to be a physical temple. There has to be a physical temple. Now, a lot of so-called Christianity and the Jews recognize that the temple of God needs to be built at the end time. They just don't know where, and they don't know how, and they don't know who's going to do it. They think they are, and they may build one over there if they can get rid of the Dome of the Rock. It won't be God's temple. Now, people say, well, this is only a spiritual temple. No, the spiritual temple flees from what? The spiritual temple? Matthew 24, 14. Let's go there a minute. You have here the context of end-time troubles coming on the earth and how the iniquity will abound and the love of many in the church will wax cold, speaking of God's people here. But he that in shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. The only ones that are redeemed and set apart for salvation are those who are worshiping the true Christ in the right way today. So this has to be talking about the church of God. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. Herbert Armstrong did not do this. He did not preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, and the end has not come. He's been dead a quarter century about now, and the end has yet to arrive. So it's going to be more than a quarter of century before this is done. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it's another at least seven years, maybe longer. All right, then it says, When you therefore, speaking of whom? God's true people. His spiritual church. See the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Stand in the holy place. So they're going to stand in the holy place. Whoso reads, let him understand. There's something here that does not and would not normally meet the eye or be understood. The whole Christian world and the Jewish world are expecting a temple to be built in that Jerusalem in the Middle East, and they think that's where you will flee from. Now that's easily understood, is it not? That's what the church thought, that's what the Christian world thinks, that's what the Jews think, that's what the beast power thinks. But there's something being revealed here, something about this that is not readily understood. It's not as it appears, in other words. That which appears to everyone is not what it is going to be. That's why the parenthetical statement, whoso reads, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. All right, then where is Judea? The abomination will be set up in the temple, and that then has to be a physical temple because the spiritual temple flees from it. The spiritual temple does not stay behind. The spiritual temple leaves. And the beast power takes over the temple that is there and desecrates it. 
<laughs> so the physical temple is left behind to be desecrated, and the spiritual temple leaves. And they flee to the mountains of Judea. It would be a good idea to know where the mountains of the true Judea are, and where the true Jerusalem is, and where the true temple of Ezekiel will be. And then it talks about praying that you be accounted worthy to escape these things, and so on. And the only ones who are even candidates to be accounted worthy are the true followers of God who follow truth and peace. I submit to you that the remnant church has to build the temple of Haggai and Zechariah and of Ezekiel 40 through 48. Haggai very clearly says, and we've been there before, the people will say it's not time to build the temple. It's not time. Now the point I've made on that, and I make again today, is that everybody says it's time to build the spiritual temple. Our bodies are the temple of God, are they not? And the New Testament is replete with scriptures that indicate that. So everybody in the church today would say it is time to build a spiritual temple. Would anyone argue with that? No. Everybody would agree on that. That's not a problem. Yet Haggai is an end-time book coupled with Zechariah, and Zechariah began to be written right in the middle of the time frame that Haggai was written. So they're both end-time prophecies. And Haggai even ends with God saying that at that time he will shake the heavens and the earth. And Zerubbabel, one of the two witnesses, will be set up as a standard and as a signet that God is God. So Haggai is clearly an end-time book from what it says itself. Okay? So in this end time then, in the context and setting of the book of Haggai, people will say, the majority of people will say, it is not time to build the temple. What temple? I think we can see everyone would say it's time to build a spiritual temple now in the end time. There will be a lot of people everyone but the final remnant, who will say it's not time for the church to build a physical temple. There will be a 90% unanimous verdict on that. Only a 10% remnant will say, yes, it is, and show up to do it because God will stir them to come do it. Now argue with that. There is no argument. We can only, Haggai can only be referring to a physical temple because that's the one everybody's going to say, oh, that's for the Jews to do over there. It's not for the church. And yet he's talking about the faithful remnant in Haggai, isn't he? He's not talking about the Jews. He's talking about Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, and the end-time church of God. That's what the whole context is about. And Zerubbabel and Joshua are not of the religion of Judaism. They are of the true religion of the Bible, 
God's two witnesses and those people with them who are the witnesses of God as talked about in Isaiah 41 and other places. I think it becomes clear then that we have to build both a spiritual temple and a physical that can be used to set up the abomination and then we will have to flee to the mountains of the true Judea. Where was the original Judea? Now I'm going to go into a few scriptures here which just don't seem to fit what's going on over there. Let's go to, book, to the book of Deuteronomy First of all, here God is talking to the people of Israel, and here's what he has to say. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. Beware that you forget not the eternal your God, and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command you this day. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built goodly houses and dwelt there. Wait a minute, wait a minute, I got ahead of myself. Let's go back to verse 3. Here he says at the end of the verse, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the eternal does man live. Now, is that ancient and forgotten? Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4 4 say the exact same thing. They quote this about the New Testament. And he talks here about keeping the commandments, which we just read in verse 11, though I was ahead of my story a bit. So the commandments are to be kept in the New Testament church, every word of God. Don't leave out any. Old and New Testament. And the apostles and Christ quoted from the Old Testament continually. So it was still in, still in effect in the days of Paul, James, Peter, and John. Okay? Uh, so live by every mouth that proceeds out of God's, or every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. Your raiment waxed not old upon you, neither did your foot swell these forty years. You shall also consider in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the eternal your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the eternal your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the eternal your God brings you into a good land. Now let's read about the promised land here. Now we've, we've read and know the story about Joshua and the spies that went in and they had grapes so big you couldn't carry them and so on and so forth. Wonderful land. But here's God's few verse description. A good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains, and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. In other words, the promised land will have lots of water, rivers, lakes, springs, water coming out of the ground in the valleys and the hills. Does that describe the Middle East? It is primarily a sand pile with a few rocks scattered in, and one river, the Jordan River, primarily. There aren't many brooks and springs there. A very, very few small ones. This land, North America, that God gave to the United States and Canada, is a land that has waters and the greatest lakes on earth, the biggest rivers on earth, well, almost, 
the Amazon is bigger than the Mississippi, but uh, you know what I mean. There are rivers all over this country and all over Canada. Huge, wonderful, beautiful rivers. A land of springs and water. There's an area here that's desert now, and there was a wilderness area at that time too, and some desert. But even where we sit today was grasslands 150 years ago. The early pioneers who came out described this as a vast grassland, like you might think of Nebraska or Kansas or Iowa at one time, before they plowed it all up. The ranchers came out here, overgrazed it, ruined it, and then the cactus and the sage and so on took over. That happened through a lot of the West. There was not much sage or juniper or pinions and that kind of thing. There was some, but when they overgrazed it, they ruined the land and the weeds took over. That's what happened right here where we are today. It wasn't this way. It became this way because of man's misuse and abuse of what God had put here. It will be a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive oil, and honey. This it describes a verdant land. Go to California. Everything that's named there grows. Go to the Midwest, the wheat and the barley fields and the corn and all the things. A tremendously productive land. Even up through Canada, the wheat, the barley, safflower, everything. A very, very productive land that we have on this continent. Until you get on to Mexico, which wasn't given to Israel, and it's a mess down there. All right, a land wherein you shall eat bread without scarceness, you shall not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you may dig brass. I did a study on mineral deposits in the land of Israel today in the Middle East, and they essentially have no mineral resources. None. They have one very small copper mine down toward the Gulf of Elat, somewhere down there. But they have no iron whatsoever. The only resources, natural minerals they have are some magnesium and things floating around in the Dead Sea. Interesting, isn't it? We have within a few miles of where I believe the original site of Jerusalem was and is, a huge iron deposit. They've taken 80 million tons out of it. The core drilling that's been done there recently, over the last 150 years, and especially real recently, show that there's a deposit there of probably at least a billion tons of iron within 10, 15 miles of the original Jerusalem. There are copper mines, the biggest in the world, a short way from the original Jerusalem. You make brass from alloys of copper. This, the Great Lakes has the biggest iron deposits, I guess, on earth. Billions of tons of iron around the Great Lakes. This land is full of iron. This land is full of copper. There are copper deposits all over southern Utah. I find the green of copper many, many places. Let's go on. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the eternal your God for the good land which he has given you. 
We came here, we ate, we got full, didn't we? Too full to look at us as an obese nation. Beware that you forget not the eternal your God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command you this day. Now, they were to go in physically at that time with Joshua, and they did eat, and they manufactured, and they got full, and God banished them, took them into captivity. Where is Israel today? Not in the Middle East, it's in Western Europe, but the leader of Israel today is in America. And we are about to lose everything we got because we've repeated the exact same thing the ancient Israelites did. But did the ancient Israelites reside in the Middle East? If they did, where is the iron? Where is the copper? Where are the mineral resources? Where is the wonderful farmland? It is not there, and historically speaking, it has always been desert. All of it. All of it. Except for a little oasis here and there along a little trickling creek called the Jordan River. I've waded across it. It's a creek, people. It's not a river. Now, if you're in the desert, anything over that wide, you call a river, I guess. But it's not a river. It's a creek. A creek to some of you. Don't forget God's commandments. Lest when you've eaten and gotten full, which we've done, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied. There is no gold, there is no silver in the Middle East. It just isn't there, it does not exist, it has never been there. We are in a land that is running over with gold and silver. We've had tremendous gold rushes in California. We've had them in uh, Alaska. We've had them in various places in this nation. And I'll tell you what, southern Utah is covered with gold and silver. You don't always see it, but it is here in enormous amounts. Have you heard of Silver Reef over here? It leads St. George. It's an incredible silver deposit. They mine millions of dollars of silver out of it. And that reef goes, I've seen outcroppings of it up north of Cedar City, and that reef, that formation, goes all the way down to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> it's the only place on earth they have found silver in, in uh, sandstone. They wouldn't believe it until they started taking silver out by the hundreds of pounds, thousands of pounds. It's here. There are tremendous gold reserves. I just talked to a man who has one of those machines that finds sunken ships with treasure on them. He's learned how to use it on Earth. He's just found an incredible deposit of gold on one of the Indian reservations not too far from here. And on and on it goes because this is the land that was blessed with all those natural resources. It isn't over there. It's here. God described Ephraim as a place where the vines would run over the wall, 
a tremendous area where things would grow, they would produce. It isn't over there. Let's go to Joshua for a moment. Just follow this up just a wee bit here. Uh, here I want uh, Joshua 7. And about verse 24, I think it was. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and so on and brought them to the valley of Achor. And of course, Achan was killed. Now this was the result of them coming to the first city in the promised land, Jericho. And the walls all fell down. You know the story. And they took the spoils, which included a lot of gold and silver. Or no, they weren't supposed to take them in this case, I guess it was. But it was there. And Achan took some of it. The wedge of gold. Where did these people get this stuff? If they were just people living in the land of Israel, as we know it today, where did all this stuff come from? Go to chapter 22. Did they just import it? Uh, let's see, Joshua 22. Uh, Joshua's talking to the people, verse 8, and he says, And he spoke to them, saying, Return with much riches to your tents, and with very much cattle, with silver, with gold, with brass, and with iron, and with very much raiment. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. So, this was in the Middle East, was it? That they were to take the spoils of all these things that God said in Deuteronomy 8, that the promised land would contain? I wonder if we've been looking at the right promised land. Because that land doesn't have any of this stuff. Where did it come from? Had they imported all this brass and iron? Had they imported all the gold and silver way back then? Or did the original promised land actually contain those things as God said it would? So when they got there, that's what they found. A land flowing with milk and honey and plants and wheat, iron, brass, gold, silver, much cattle, and so on. The reason it was there is because that's where it originally was. So if you're looking for the promised land, you better find a land that has all those things Deuteronomy 8 mentions, and then you can go to Joshua 22 when they went into the land, and sure enough, there it was. God had said that's where it would be. That's where he had put it. That the hills there would contain the brass, not somewhere else and have it hauled there, okay? Your stones will be iron. These stone, these iron deposits around here are hard as iron, and so heavy you can hardly pick up a chunk that big. Iron stones, if you will, <laughs> right here in this land, and there are none over there. Does the light begin to come on? Why did God build a spiritual Israel, the church, 
in this land. The reason he did is because this is the promised land. He didn't build it over in Israel. So far as I know, there was never one person from that nation ever baptized into the church of God. Now, there may be some who <clears throat> were converted over here and went over to get baptized in the Jordan. There might have been six or eight or ten or fifteen of those. I don't know about that. But there were not letters coming in to the church back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s from Israel asking to be baptized. It was primarily here and in Canada and in England, but mostly here, 90% of it a few scattered among some Gentile lands. This is the place God established his church because this is the land where the original land of promise was. This is the place that has all these things we're talking about. Now, let's go to the history just a little bit. Let's go to Leviticus 23, begin there, or 26, excuse me. Leviticus 26, <clears throat> and here let's go down to about verse 20 or 31. Here he says, if you disobey God, this is the chapter on blessings and cursings, verse 31, I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. And I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the heathen, and I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, and you be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. Now, of the continents on this earth, which lay essentially desolate for hundreds, thousands of years? Just a few migrating Indians roaming about it. Comprehend that. Three races God established, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. He did not establish any brown races, black, beige, and yellow were the only three. So where did the browns all come from? You had to have a mixture of black, white, and yellow. It's the only way you can get brown. The people who were left here, the few wandering about, letting the land rest, not tilling much of it, a few planted a little corn here and there, were brown people that could only have been here as a result of the mixture of black and white and yellow. So God saw to it that the blacks left, and there is awesome evidence of black presence in South America, Central America, and Eastern America. Some of it's been hidden up here, but it's all over the place in Central and South America. There's also DNA of black presence in North and South America and of Oriental as well. 
So the brown Indians of North and South America are derived from, DNA proving it, the three races that God established. So Israel had to have been here. The DNA shows it. History shows it if you look at some of the things that are being dug up all across this country. There are cities that were made by white people, villages and towns. There's a whole, uh, it just goes on and on when you start looking into it. We were here, and then we were gone. And the land enjoyed her Sabbaths for thousands of years. Now let's see if the story that I'm telling you there checks out. Uh, let's go to Jeremiah 9. Now you, we've looked at some of these before, but I want to put this together, because if we go into a fast Tuesday... As I said, I don't take a fast lightly. I like to eat. And if I'm going to fast, I need to know that it applies to me and that it's important. Okay? Jeremiah 9, verse 11. I will make Jerusalem heaps, piles of rubble, and a den of dragons, and I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. That has never occurred in the Middle East. It just hasn't occurred. What land was left desolate? Jerusalem in particular and the cities of Judah. Now there were people wandering around here, some browns that we had left behind. They were not the original inhabitants. When you talk about the American Indian and the Native American, the Native American was not the Indian as we know them. Native Americans were from the Garden of Eden. Three races, and from the flood, as some of them came back after the flood. So Jerusalem will be heaps and a den of dragons. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. That has never happened since the Middle East was established and called Jerusalem and the land of promise. It has never happened. That city that is there has had the walls knocked down from time to time. Wars have waged, been waged across back and forth there. But it was never left desolate. It has always been inhabited. Go back and read the history. There were times when there weren't a lot of people there, but it has never been less de left desolate according to this. Now notice this in verse 12. Who is the wise man that may understand this? Now that sounds like you're reading Matthew 24, 14, and 15 all over again, doesn't it? Let him who reads understand that that is not Jerusalem. It is not the land of promise. So just as Matthew 24, 14, and 15 have to be understood from a viewpoint that is not common, so is this statement about Jerusalem in Jeremiah 9. Who is the wise man who, that may understand this? In other words, there's something here that is not easily understood. Right? This is difficult. Won't be a common knowledge. And who is he to whom the mouth of the Eternal has spoken that he might declare it? For what the land perishes and is burned up like a wilderness that none pass through. And then he talks about the reason being disobedience. 
So when he talks about Jerusalem and the cities of Judah being desolate, it's not going to be anything that is easily perceived. It's going to be very difficult to understand, and God will have to reveal it. It won't be known otherwise. Who is the man to whom the mouth of the Eternal is spoken that it may be declared? It's unusual. It will not be accepted. It is not known. Isaiah 61. <coughs> All right, let's go. It talks about the trees of righteousness that will be planted uh, and... Some people will be given beauty for ashes and so on. And they shall build the old wastes, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. So we just read in Jeremiah 9 that Jerusalem and the cities of Judah would be left desolate, and that it would be something very difficult to understand, and only God could reveal it, so it could be preached. And then it says here that it will be a repairing of the waste cities, that desolations of many generations. <coughs> so Jerusalem and the cities of Judah will have been desolate for not a generation or two, or three, if you try to push it, toward the Jerusalem over there. These will be waste cities that have been that way for many generations. Again, I ask, what nation, what place, what continent on the earth was basically left undeveloped, a desolation, a wilderness, for many generations? If Israel were taken away from the original promised land which had all those things we read about, a land of plenty and natural resources, then they were gone for what? Maybe 2,520 years? Allowed to return. Many generations. Wow. That land over there has never had that history. Go read it for yourself. I won't go into all of it. I have read it. Um, let's see, Isaiah 58, 12. It's talking here about those who will keep God's Sabbath, those who keep the fast of atonement and other fasts, and we're about to keep one Tuesday. It says those who will obey God are going to then suddenly be blessed, and their light will break forth as the morning, verse 8, and their health will spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the eternal shall be your rear guard. So he's speaking here of people who repent and righteously follow God, okay? And then it talks about righteousness there. But the point I want to get to is verse 12, and they that shall be of you, shall build the old waste places. So those people who are truly obeying God and keeping true Christianity as described in the first part of this chapter from verse 1 on down through verse uh, 9 will be the ones who build up the old waste places. 
and that you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. So it is a place that has been desolate for many generations. And it is going to be the true people of God who raise up the waste places. The church of God. And you shall be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If you start keeping my Sabbath. So this is going to be Sabbath keepers. Christian, or the Christian world, are not Sabbath keepers. It is not them. It is the people who took their foot off God's Sabbath who will raise up these waste cities that have been that way for many generations. The church of God does not exist in Israel today, except for a few people who have gone there now looking for the Jews to build a temple. They're starting to migrate over there in small numbers from here. That is not the place. Uh, Jeremiah 33. These are end-time scriptures, prophecies. Jeremiah 33, <clears throat> verse 10. Thus says the Eternal, Again, again there shall be heard in this place, which you say shall be desolate, without man and without beast, even the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. So in the end time, again, in this place, the real, true, original place that is today without man, without inhabitant, and without beast, meaning... Uh, agriculture. It is a place of dragons, lizards, and jackals or coyotes today. The land of Jerusalem and many of the cities of Judah which were made desolate, we don't even know where they are today. I think we know now where Jerusalem is and no one lives there. No one lives there. Now this is an end time prophecy. How many people live in that Jerusalem over there? Quite a few. I've been there. There's people everywhere. And it has not been desolate for many generations. Now, is this coming alive and true and for today or not? Let's notice Ezekiel 36. There are things that the world does not know. And God is beginning to reveal <coughs> how they really are. Ezekiel 36. Let's see. Verse 9. For behold... Oh, well, wait a minute. Let's start in verse 8. It's a change in context. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall show for, shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. So the promised land is going to become productive for God's people. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and, shall be and, it shall be, and you shall be tilled and sown. What does it tell us in Zechariah 3 about the beginning of the building under Joshua? That everyone would have his own vine and fig tree. Je uh, Zechariah 2 talks about 
villages with much men and cattle. So it's speaking of now, in the next few years, of what shall be. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited, and the waste shall be builded. I will be very surprised if God does not build some of these villages that constitute Jerusalem at the end in some of the same places where the original cities of Judah were. Hidden today, but I'll just bet you God can lead us to those same exact places. And I will multiply upon you man and beast, just like Zechariah 2. And they shall increase and bring forth fruit. And I will settle you after your old estates, where you originally were. And will do better to you than at your beginnings, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. So he's going to give us the same land that we had before that had all those mineral resources and agricultural produce that originally was, that has been desolate for a long time. Now, our nation that has all these things is again going to be desolate. But you and I know from many, many scriptures, he's going to give us again a garden like Eden. Let's go to chapter... Uh, Oh, verse 26 of this chapter. <clears throat> now, when is this? He says in verse 26, A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. Well, when is that? That's at the end. Did you read Joel? Peter thought that in Acts 2, that was speaking... It was a fulfillment of Joel. Well, it was a minor fulfillment, pretty dramatic for them, but the big one's coming at the time of the day of the Lord. So Ezekiel is talking about the time when God is going to convert us at the end and put his spirit in us and give us his truth and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Where, brethren, has that occurred? Where are the beginnings of it here in the end time? It began in a city of much commerce. It's where he established and built it up went from Oregon down where it got its real growth and start in Southern California in the southwestern United States. That's where. This is the land that he gave to our fathers. He brought us back here beginning 1607 and forward as at least a permanent establishment. The Vikings and others had been here earlier and made villages and so on. But we were brought back here, and now we have screwed it up big time. And now it's going to be taken away again. But he has put within a few people in this land his spirit, a small group. Fear not, little flock. will not be large, it will be small. <clears throat> and he has only given his spirit to a few that obey. 
He only gives His Spirit to them that obey, Acts 5.29. A lot of people think they have God's Spirit in this nation today who don't have a clue. Satan can appear as a minister and an angel of light and so can his demons. And they worship they know not what. It is only a very few who have been given the Spirit, the true Spirit of God. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. How clear can it get? That's right here. They don't have it over there. Not one convert that I've ever heard of. And I've been around the church for a good while. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will save you from all your uncleannesses. So he's going to bring a few out and cleanse them. And I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field that you will receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Verse 32, Not for your sakes do I this, says the eternal God, be it known to you. <laughs> it isn't because we're so wonderful that God is doing this. It's for his sake, for his name. Thus says the eternal, verse 33, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, he says in Isaiah 50, oh, what am I trying to say? About 40, Isaiah 43, He'll remove our iniquities and our sins in one day. About the time that Cyrus leads us to those temple treasures. The desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. Here he says he's going to, will dwell in the cities and the waste shall be builded, verse 33, and then 34 continues that. And they shall say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left around about you shall know... Uh, about you shall know that I, the Eternal, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Eternal, have spoken it, and I will do it. Right here in the land that God originally promised. Zechariah 12. Let's get one more on that. Zechariah 12. We've gone here before, but I want to put it in this context. Now this is speaking of the time just before Christ returns. Chapter 14, he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two. But that's after chapter 12. This is before his return in chapter 14. Verse 6, In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left, the two witnesses are going to do just that. They'll go all over the world. There will be plagues. There will be pestilences. They will thresh, because as it says in Isaiah 41 and Micah 4 or 5, 4 I guess it is, that he will make us a new threshing instrument to thresh the lands about us and how they cannot stand against God's people until the last day before the resurrection or the last three and a half days when they will be killed. But... They'll be like fire to wood. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Why did he put it like that? Because it's a different place than that which everybody thinks. Who can understand this? Who can declare it? To whom has God shown it that it may be preached, as Ezekiel puts it? 
Why do you have to say, let him who reads understand? Because they don't know where the original Judah was. They don't know where the original promised land was. that had all those things we read about. And therefore, this will seem like a strange thing to them. How much does it take? What time is it? I've got a little bit of time left. Let's go to Daniel. I think we know the story here in chapter 8 about the ram pushing from the west and doesn't touch the ground, probably speaking of our air power and how we destroy one of the nations of Medo-Persia, which I believe was Iraq. And then it says we'll break the other horn of Persia, which would be Iran, the original land of Persia. And then it says we'll have our own horn broken, we'll be divided into four parts, and this will be, and then they will come against the church at the latter end of their years. So this land is about to be divided up, I think, into four pieces, and this is where the church is, and it's where the remnant will gather because it's the original promised land. And then the abomination of desolation is going to come because there's going to rise up a little horn, one of the rulers of one of the four divisions of the land, and he is going to come to God's temple and set up the abomination of desolation. Let him who reads understand. God's own people are going to build his own temple in his own promised land that he gave where the original Garden of Eden was and will be restored because it will be the original Jerusalem. This is going to happen. It's right here in the book of Daniel. Now Daniel prayed a prayer because Jerusalem was desolate and he was writing during the time of the, at the end of the 70 years of captivity and praying for God to restore. Just as we have seen our nation begin to come apart <coughs> which represents Jerusalem and the original promised land, and as we have seen the church within that land destroyed before our very eyes, we see this happening. And he bemoans in verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I beseech you, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are become a reproach to all that are about us. And his desolate sanctuary, he wants it to be restored. Verse 19, the end of it, he says, For your city and your people are called by your name. The city and the people. So it is a physical city with his people in it, in the original land of Judea. And there are mountains nearby. There are none around Jerusalem. Over there, it sits on top of some rocks, which are not very high, 2,500 feet elevation above the Mediterranean. But that's the highest thing around. Here, where the original Jerusalem was, there are mountains that go up thousands of feet. And there are trees on the mountains here that can be taken to go up to the mountain and bring trees and build the temple. There aren't over there. Anyway, 
to give Daniel answer to his concerns about everything being blown apart and desolate, God says in verse 24, Seventy weeks are determined upon your people. This is speaking of the true church, Daniel's people, God's people. And upon your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. He says he'll remember our sins no more here at the end time. And to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. He says once we turn righteous and have God's righteousness upon us in Isaiah 54, we will never again turn away. <coughs> that we'll live through or be resurrected in the first resurrection at the end of this age. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem today in that place over there in the Middle East are there. They don't need to be restored. So in the end time, this is talking about building Jerusalem. Well, that's a city over there with, what, a million people? Maybe not quite. A whole scat of them. And it's built. And they're planning on building their temple there. And there's no indication that it's going to be destroyed until the setting up of the abomination of desolation. So if a city needs to be restored and rebuilt, which we've read about in Isaiah 58, 60, uh, 61, and Jeremiah 9, and Ezekiel 33, and all the way through, then it has to be where the original was, and it has to be one that has been desolate and has not been built, okay? So when the order is given to build Jerusalem, that's not just the church, is it? The command to build a church basically was given to Herbert Armstrong and to us a long time ago, and it's been being built. But this is the time that the abomination of desolation is about to occur. And Jerusalem is still desolate. It has to be built. That has to be somewhere other than the Middle East because that one doesn't need to be built. It isn't desolate and hasn't been for many generations where no man or inhabitant is there. So it has to be somewhere else. I think I know where it is today. So from the time the commandment is given to restore and to build Jerusalem, you have a 70 weeks prophecy here. And it culminates in the destruction of the city, verse 26, and the sanctuary, or the temple, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, an army, and at the end of the war, desolations are determined. And it talks then about the abomination of desolation being set up in verse 27. So Jerusalem has to be built, and the only ones qualified to build it are God's people. <clears throat> and the temple has to be built in order to be desolated. And the only temple in the Bible that has not been built to this point, physically on the earth, is Ezekiel's temple in Je Ezekiel 40 through 48. The Jews are not planning on building that temple. They're trying to follow the scale of Solomon's temple and rebuild it. 
They're not trying to rebuild Ezekiel's temple. That's for God's people to do. They're trying to restore something that God has not ordained be restored. In fact, Ezekiel's temple will not even fit over there. It fits here. You couldn't put it over there. There are rivers here that came out of the Garden of Eden. They've been changed somewhat. But I believe the original Zion, what does it say about Zion? Zion stands most beautiful, the joy of the whole land. You know what the national park that was most visited last year was? Surpassed the Grand Canyon, surpassed Yellowstone and Yosemite. It was Zion National Park, the joy of all the land. The Bible talks about the heights of Zion. There is no mountain called Zion in the Middle East. There is a cemetery that kind of runs a little bit over curb high out of the city. I almost tripped on it. There are no heights of Zion over there. It's here. And if Zion is here, Jerusalem has to be here also because they are paired together in the Bible continually. You can't have one here and one there. You can't have your cake and eat it too. It's either one place or the other. If this is the original promised land, and this is the original Judea, and this is where the original Jerusalem was, and it's been desolate for many generations, then I recommend you be here. If you don't believe that and you think that it is over there, then you'd better get over there and build Jerusalem and build the temple because that's where it's got to be. It's that simple. If these scriptures are all talking about being over there, then we better go there. You can start packing at, oh what, about 9 o'clock tonight? If that's where the temple is to be built. If that's the Jerusalem that needs to be restored. Then God's people need to be where God is working. We need to find out. We need to know. We better be in the right place doing the right thing at the right time. Because those who are in Judea are going to have to flee for their very lives to the hills of Judea. Let him who reads understand. So when Tuesday comes around, brethren, let's understand that we are told in Zechariah that if we've been fasting on these days, they will be turned to feasts of joy here in this end time and that the desolations will be rebuilt. And if we keep God's Sabbath and His truth, He will do it. And He will cause things that are not understood by the wisdom of man to happen. And He will cause it to be known and to be preached. And when this happens, the whole world is finally going to know that He is the Eternal. When He restores the desolations of many generations in the land that all these Bible stories have to fit, the land where the black people started Jerusalem and the white people came later. And the archaeologists and the historians absolutely, utterly contradict the Bible in their assessment of where Jerusalem is. 
from its very inception. They say it had to be Semitic because that's all they find there is Semitic ruins. Greek and Roman and Persian and on and on of the people who have been there. But nothing from black people. So they say that the black people, I mean that the people of Canaan and the Amorites and the Hittites were Semitic. And every movie you see from Hollywood shows them light-skinned, barely brown, <coughs> not black. And yet God very clearly says that the Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites, and Canaanites were of Ham and were then black. From the very beginning of the true Jerusalem, mankind and all their history and archaeology cannot prove the Bible record over there. So you're going to have to either believe the archaeologists and the historians, or you're going to have to believe the Bible. Which is it going to be? When I fast Tuesday, I'm going to be fasting over this land being desolate all these generations, and the church here being desolate in the land of promise that he gave to our fathers Abraham and said would give us this good land. I am going to fast that God restore his faithful remnant. I am going to fast that he restore Jerusalem and the cities of, Jer of Judah. Because we are in a mess, both as a church and as a nation. And I know that the nation is going to go ahead and go down and be taken captive into captivity. And only we who are faithful to God and those remnants and that remnant from around the four corners of the earth are going to come here to the original promised land and build the original Jerusalem back that has been desolate. So if this fast is over the desolation of Jerusalem, you need to understand what that means.